You're listening to There's a Better Way, smart talk on healthcare and technology. If you're up for energizing and story-driven conversations with national healthcare leaders driving industry innovation across the country, then you are in the right place. I want to offer a warm welcome to Chris Ross, Chief Information Officer at the one and only Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. As CIO at Mayo, Chris and his team provide the technology that supports the amazing things happening at the Mayo Clinic. And he loves to inspire providers and scientists to use technology in new ways. One of his favorite things is when a physician comes up to him and says, you introduced this new widget and it made my life better. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about, using technology to make life better across healthcare, across the nation. In today's episode, Chris tells us about how he got into this career, which started when he was growing up in Minneapolis, taking apart old TVs and other electronics, using the soldering iron, and playing with the mechanical calculating machine. He'll also talk about his unique perspective on healthcare from his position both as a CIO and as a patient. And he'll address what he calls the responsible use of artificial intelligence in healthcare, where the highest order vision is that more data drives more cures. Let's dive in. Well, welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you, Melanie. It's great to be here. As you know, the show is focused on charting a better way in healthcare. And as the chief information officer at the Mayo Clinic, I know this is something you've got a good deal of experience in. Can you just talk with us and get us started by talking with us about your mission at Mayo? Well, Melanie, I think my core job is to provide reliable technology for one of the best hospitals in the U.S. And that's a daunting and exciting job, even if that's all I ever do. Um, The other part of my job is to try to help our physician leaders and scientists figure out new ways to use technology in different ways. And once in a while to provide some pathways and some signals ahead about what might be coming so that we can inspire our physicians and scientists into things they might explore that they haven't thought of. Or maybe it's mash up a couple of ideas to make two good ideas together and do a great idea. I love that. So, I mean, there's a lot about what you just said that I'm sure inspires you every day. But if you could just pick one thing that you're just particularly delighted about right now, what would that be? It would be really tempting to lean into some of the forward-facing things, and they are exciting. You know, what is happening next with large language models or with AI generally or other kinds of things? But a lot of it, frankly, is things like when a physician says, you know, you guys introduced this new widget and it just made my life better. You know, that's just awesome. That's, that's really great. And technology is really there to make people's lives easier and better. So uh, I can 
completely appreciate how joyful it is to get somebody saying how this widget made my life better. Before we get more into the professional part of the conversation, let's just start with more of the personal. We really like on this show to understand how a leader in healthcare like yourself got started before we get into the details of what you're doing today. So let's just start with where did you grow up? So as a little kid, I moved around the Midwest uh, a fair amount and lived, I was born in Omaha, Nebraska, and I lived in Kansas City and in Des Moines. And, but I really grew up in Minneapolis. Um, that remains my home. I think I was a pretty classic, somewhat nerdy, occasionally athletic kid who, you know, was interested in a lot of stuff as a kid. Well, where was the first tinge of interest in technology? So my brother and I used to take um, electronics apart and reassemble it. And uh, my dad had been a radio technician in the Air Force during the Korean War. So there's always a lot of kind of soldering iron and and um, old TV torn apart sort of stuff. A lot of mechanical stuff like that. And I can remember, I don't remember if it was a gift to my brother or to me. You know, it sort of didn't matter. We just played with all of each other's stuff. Shows you how old I am. It was a something out of a thing called the Edmund Scientific Catalog, which was like, you know, toys for boys in the, that era. And it had a uh, mechanical calculating machine. And you turned a little crank and, you know, it was sort of like, a, a, you know, Babbitt's differential. This was pre-electronic. Well, that's the stuff that you just don't know what's going to spark somebody to do what they do, you know? Yeah. Right? Just looking at Edmund's scientific catalog. Who would have thought, you know? And your listeners of a certain age might remember it. Well, I definitely remember the early calculators. So well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> How did you evolve towards technology and healthcare and the intersection of the two? You know, academic degree, I have a BS degree in economics from the University of Minnesota. And I was a math guy and I was a statistics guy and I used to run a lot of computer models, but I was not a technology person and I wasn't a healthcare person. I didn't get into healthcare until 2003 when a friend from grad school said, I heard you just sold your company, which I had. And he said, why don't you come work for me at United Health Group? I ended up as the chief information officer for the behavioral health part of the United Health Group. And that was an area of passion for me. And um, I loved it. And I've not turned back. I've been in healthcare now the last 20 years. So it's always interesting to hear the paths that someone like you have, have been through. So you have talked publicly about being a cancer survivor. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that you're doing well. On a personal note, I am as well. I've gone through early, luckily early stage breast cancer and know that the experience of being up close and personal with the healthcare system is something to bring back and use in your career. Your quote is, I don't recommend getting cancer as the best way to focus your career and gain personal clarity, but there are gifts that the most unpleasant and unwelcome journey can bring. 
Can you share some of that? You know, I uh, I would, did not expect to have a stage three colorectal cancer, and yet there it was. When I got sick, I knew that I didn't want cancer to define me. You know, I've talked about it publicly, but I, I don't feel defined by it. I looked around for some models, and um, I wanted to do something that made sense. So I had a really close friend whose daughter had had childhood leukemia twice as a toddler and as a kindergartner. She used to talk about finding the gift of cancer, which I thought was a pretty crazy idea, but she really meant it. And it was, you know, I, I didn't want my daughter to get cancer, but I found that going through that journey, you know, taught me a lot about myself. And I think she did a better job of it than I ever will in really embodying that and really grabbing hold of it. But that resonated in my ears as I was diagnosed, and I wanted to find out what the gifts were going to be. And I determined it was two things. Um, one, hey, what better way to really learn healthcare than being you know, on the table and in the bed? And um, I did learn an awful lot about it. And then the second piece was I just really was determined I was going to live life with joy. And I was not going to be overly pessimistic or sad. I have no idea what my, you know, outcome was going to be. Um, but I decided this is, this is not going to define me. Uh, joy is going to define me. So I spent a lot of time amusing myself as I was getting treated, trying to see what I could see that I would not have otherwise seen just rounding or reading a report. And I learned a ton. And the living with joy part is really for real for me. I feel like I am unbelievably lucky. Um, I had a chance to know that one's days are potentially numbered, and, but they weren't for me. I feel like I have the gift of health and life. So then I got cancer a second time and uh, got to really test those two propositions. Second time around, I decided, you know what? My first time around, I was pretty internally focused. This next time around, I'm going to try and give back. So I've been trying to do a fair amount of work in how can I make life better for people who might walk down that path that both you and I have walked down. How can we work on making patient experience better based on you know what we learn? Absolutely. Well, that is um, incredibly inspirational and. And I can absolutely understand deeply how the experience can actually bring gifts and, and new experiences and, and all of that, not by choice, but certainly gifts that you would not otherwise see. So then let's focus this on being a patient, you know, a patient with a quite serious diagnosis and seeing health IT up close and personal. How has seeing that up close from a patient perspective informed your work now? I happened to get diagnosed um, uh, about two months after we just uh, converted all of our clinical systems at Mayo. So I got to see them raw and, uh, you know, um, not yet optimized. So I, I, I saw some stuff that, you know, could be improved. I feel like I learned a lot. 
But the other piece is a little bit of a sense of empathy uh, around things like, you know, I think Mayo, for instance, has a pretty good digital front door. Um, our app works really well. Our portal works really well. It's all cool. But our digital back door is terrible. It doesn't even exist. You just get chucked out the back door and you're done. Healthcare can be a very transactional place in a lot of ways. And I don't feel like I was prepared to manage the, you know, aftercare associated with my cancer. You know, it, Melody, you know, it can damage your body and you can have side effects from treatments and lots of things like that. And I, I wasn't ready for that. And I, I just, I don't feel like I've had the right technological uh, support tools along with other things. And I, and I don't mean that to say bad things about Mayo. I love Mayo. They treated me great. But uh, we could do so much better on digital backdoors. Holy smokes. I think about what if I was in a less integrated system than Mayo is? What if my health insurance was challenging? What if I was in a critical access hospital where, you know, I had an oncologist who tr treated one form of cancer? What about the community oncologist who has to know everything about everything? It just gives me the chills um, to think about, you know, how much worse it could have been for me and how much better it has to be for everybody. Oh, absolutely. The health equity thing is the, uh, something I've personally spent a lot of time on since as well. Just how do we get, even with the issues, feeling lucky? And yet, how, how, do, we, how do we change that for, even, for everyone? But then how do we bring more access for, for everyone as well? Well, what improvements have you seen in the last five years? Well, Mayo's tech got better just because we had a chance to optimize it. But things like, um, you know, a lot of the data interoperability challenges, at least on the provider to provider side, has gotten significantly better. The deep adoption of the FHIR standard for exchange of data has been a game changer. I think about the state of interoperability when I first discovered it as a kind of idiot in 2006 and in a different setting and where it is today. Let's dig a little into interoperability then. You talked a little bit about the progress, but where have you seen the progress and since you led clinical interoperability here at ShareScripts? So I'd back up to kind of what brought me, I think, to SureScripts. I started a job in 2006 with a clinical delivery system called Minute Clinic. And one of our principles was that we didn't want Minute Clinic to be separate from the rest of the healthcare um, industry. So we put a big premium on sending an after-visit summary to the patient's medical home, their primary care physician. And the time when I joined, we had like, you know, 40 clinics in five cities. So, you know, we were kind of running up mailroom to do that. And I was like, well, that's no good. I thought, well, let's just go find the right format for data and let's just go find a transport mechanism. It must exist. There was nothing. There, there was no standard. There was no envelope. There was no carrier network. There were no directories. There was literally nothing. We kind of invented some very, very basic stuff using a specification that was pre-CDA, pre-CCD, it was called CCR, 
It was an XML format. Some medical folks who said, well, here's how we can represent a SOAP note, subjective objective assessment plan. Now what the heck do we do with it? And so, you know, I just walked around the industry trying to find anybody who could take my messages and deliver them someplace else. And we totally failed. And so then um, Microsoft Health Vault came along and Google Health. Oh, great. And so we made it super easy. You could leave a minute clinic with, you know, the equivalent of a, a QR code. It wasn't. You could sign up for your account and boom, you can move your record. Well, there's nobody in their side listening. There's nobody to receive the records. And then I met some crazy guys with SureScripts and said, well, you guys have a national network for sending scripts around. Can't we send some medical records across this network? So we built this little dinosaur thing together, it's, but there was no traffic on that network. Minute Clinic wanted to move its headquarters to Rhode Island, and my kids were the wrong age to move. I didn't want to move them. And um, I, uh, this, uh, some people at Scripts were foolish enough to say, well, why don't you come continue that work here at Scripts?" And, and I did. Now, that's a great story. I appreciate you sharing it from an overstocked mailroom to trying before EHRs had really even taken off to send electronic records where even once you finally figured out the electronic approach to sending, there was no one there to receive because you have to build the network first to ShareScripts where um, you must have been building the early parts of the clinical direct messaging and record locator and exchange. That's exactly what we did. But early days, honestly, Melanie, it was just howling in a hurricane. You know, it was just, it, it felt somewhat fruitless. But, you know, I'm nothing if not hard-headed and persistent. So we just kept going. Tenacious. That's what you have to be to get this stuff done, right? Tenacious. You know there's got to be a better way. So now let's turn to a subject that I know you've been very involved in artificial intelligence, AI. And the whole nation is grappling with it right now with its potential across lots of industries and personal life. Uh, But let's put it into the context of healthcare. Philips Future Health Index 2023 for the U.S. reports that 35% of healthcare respondents say they're now investing in AI for integrating diagnostics and that's up 17% from last year. You recently moderated the HIMSS 23 keynote focusing on AI responsibility in healthcare. Can you unpack that for us? What does it mean to use AI responsibly? There's probably two edges to that problem. One is the irresponsible use of pick the chat GPT tools. You hear anecdotally stories about residents who rounding, you know, uh, looking for a sense of confidence will ask chat GPT a question about, can this medication be used for this purpose? And it's, it's a little hair raising, um, because the degree to which those models hallucinate is, you know, is irresponsibly high. So I don't want my care, nor do I want the care of any of my loved ones being moderated through a hallucinating chat GPT. I think the other end of it is I think it would be irresponsible for us not to use it. Healthcare costs way too much. Health equity is an enormous problem. Inaccessibility and lack of hope is a real problem. 
um, the number of conditions for which we do not have reliable cures is a problem. And AI is not necessarily the biggest hammer to solve all those problems, nor the only one, but it's going to be a piece of the puzzle. And so I would imagine that what you're talking about is the quality of the data going into some of the healthcare-specific tools being used by doctors, scientists, clinicians. That's a whole different realm of work. It is, although um, I, 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 here's a, I think, very optimistic um, version of that. Yeah, you need high-quality training data, and you want to make sure that the training data is not biased and it doesn't expose to all kinds of um, selection bias and racial bias and other kinds of things. But um, a couple of years ago, some of our cardiologists did this really fascinating study, and it was the hypothesis was can we de de detect arrhythms in someone's heart when they are not in an arrhythmic moment. So specifically, they looked at atrial fibrillation, which is um, a pretty significant heart condition that can lead to blood clots and strokes and heart failure and other things, right? But you can't definitively diagnose someone today if they have AFib unless you can actually detect them when they're in an AFib moment. Okay. So these cardiologists took uh, ECGs from two different patient populations, one of which was patients known to not have AFib. And then another was from a group, a population that was known to have AFib, but it took only the normal rhythm periods, right? Which you would record just at any time. Okay. They put it in the blender, anonymized it, had the machine learning go to town on it. And what they discovered was that the machine could differentiate and determine by looking at someone's ECG, this patient has AFib, even though they weren't in an AFib event. Well, it's a pretty big deal, right? Because it means the number of cases that, uh, that you can be diagnosed with goes up by a lot. And it turns out that the fidelity of the data that you need doesn't have to be the most sophisticated multi-lead ECG. It can be done with products that are not quite consumer grade, but just above consumer and below clinical grade. Fantastic breakthrough, right? So those technologies are just now being spread out into the world. Well, you made reference to Daedalus, who advised his son Icarus to take the middle way on his flight to avoid plunging into the sea or getting scorched by the sun. Can you explain that and what the lesson here is related to AI? Well, I think that, you know, the whole middle way thing, that's kind of a Buddha thing. Um, I think I'm kind of half Presbyterian, half Buddhist. So I believe in the middle way. I, I, you know, I think it's the idea that, that, uh, you know, the, the Icarus story was you know, too much um, ambition and flying too close to the sun is going to melt your, your wings. And I think we have, there's a risk that we can, you know, poison the well by over promising and under delivering with some of these tools to the point where we hurt someone or, there, there is uh, inequity problems or hidden bias issues or whatever. If we try and go too fast, um, you know, the risk in going um, too slow, it seems to me, is you know we leave some potential cure sitting on the curbside. And you know, I've heard really smart people talk about this that like 
if I'm if if I was to be injured by a medical procedure, I would much rather that happen because of the inattentiveness of a physician as opposed to a machine that messed up. I get that. It has a qualitative difference to it, and I, I respect that. But I'm not sure we want to bottle this stuff up until it's, you know, absolutely 100%. I think we're going to leave some stuff on the shelf that, frankly, I I want to have treating me. Um, should I have a significant illness in, in my life or you know, my loved ones. For sure. So there's just that fine line between going too fast and going too slow. Yeah. Goldilocks. Goldilocks. Well, one of the panelists in the HIMSS keynote discussion uh, asked a really good question, which I'll pose to you here. What is it that we want from these tools for our future? And what will it take to make them really equitable? Yeah. You've mentioned that a few times. I am really hoping that we will aim these at a combination of different targets. What would be a shame would be if all these tools were aimed at sophisticated, expensive diagnostics for elites and not at solving the equity problem. And yet at the same time, I sure would like to see at least some of the focus go into un- incurable diseases where maybe the result of that is a cure that might not be within the reach of everyone. It, it's one of the real challenges and joys in healthcare is you, you get to and you have to think about those things. If I develop a cancer for a third time, I don't have many options left and that would be bad. So am I interested in having the next range of cures in case my cancer occurs? Well, yeah, I sure am. Do I want that to be the only thing? No. I want to have these tools be used to help deal with hypertension and diabetes that shortens the lives of millions and millions of people where the solution is, you know, much more pedestrian than that, but uh, potentially much more profound. The perspective you're sharing is just so, so cool to hear because you're clearly healthcare IT expert with your own personal experience working at Mayo. So you're very clearly in the patient. You've got the patient clearly front and center. So how is AI manifesting at the Mayo Clinic right now? We're doing some really interesting work that we did with Google around um, better deployment of radiation therapy in ways that helps a radiation oncologist plan and execute treatments better. Lots and lots of things are happening in imaging. The chest radiologist will sometimes get an alert that says, you know, this image uh, might have some um, indications that suggest a pulmonary embolism might be present. So, hey, take a look. It's not diagnosing for that radiologist, but it's, you know, alerting them, take a look. And I think there's a bunch of other decision things that we have um, that are in, in the works. Honestly, we, we, we created um, Mayo Clinic Cloud is kind of our foundation for where our data lives that helps do many things, including AI. We have a thing that we call AI Factory. I think we've got three or 400 separate projects underway in AI Factory. And I mean, you just kind of can't count them. 
it's hard to know necessarily. I mean, you know, which one's going to win? I don't know, but I'll bet out of a couple of hundred, um, we're going to get some meaningful stuff. All right. So let's look ahead. Let's just say it's the year 2050. Where will Mayo Clinic be vis-a-vis creating the next generation of care? What would be an ideal state for AI and healthcare? So this is the vision of our um, CEO, Dr. Gianrico Perugia. And I want to make sure, and if, if people are familiar with Dr. Perugia, they've heard his speaking or his writing, you'll, you'll know that I am doing nothing but parroting the boss here. There's no original idea here whatsoever. Um, his view is that um, healthcare needs to start think it needs to start exhibiting what he calls platform thinking rather than pipeline thinking, where a platform is what SureScripts does. It is an intermediary which connects people who have great solutions with people who have great needs. So Mayo Clinic Platform was launched in early 2019 with a vision that we are going to create, that Mayo at first was going to have a platform, and over time, Mayo would be a platform in which we're not limited to bricks and mortar patients coming to our locations for care, although we will still do that for the indefinite future. We'll do more of it than we're doing today. But the platform component is how can we catalyze a set of solutions, some of which might be invented at Mayo, but most of them won't be. So we're creating, for instance, a distributed data network in which all of the data uh, of our partners remains um, in their own repositories where they are, it is secure and control. Uh, but queries can operate across that multiple um, data environments and generate terrific solutions that you couldn't get from um, one source of data alone. The platform will over time generate uh, significant numbers of algorithms that we will make available outwards. And some of those algorithms will be developed by our scientists. A bunch of them won't. Um, But the idea is that Mayo Connect in a curating role and in a responsible, hopefully trusted way, uh, if we maintain our highest standards, um, we think we're a, a brand in healthcare that people can believe in. Um, and we can provide those solutions, not just to the, the patients who can come to a Mayo Clinic, um, but to patients everywhere around the world. We're just, that's our 2030 vision is what Dr. Perugia refers to as cure, connect, and transform. So it's great to know and hear that someone like you at a place like Mayo is so engaged and looking forward to 2030, 2040, 2050 in these ways, that gives us all hope. So um, what are the big things that you're trying to solve in healthcare today? Like where you just look at, there's clearly a better way. Oh boy. Well, our physicians do not love using the systems that we put in front of them. And that's a generational challenge. We've just got to get better around that. Voice looks good. Um, um, Different language tools look good. You know, better UI design, just generally boring stuff looks good. But we got to do better for our clinicians. 
you know, we, we are seeing a multi-decade long shortage of medical professionals ahead of us. So if we don't fix some of these problems, um, uh, there's going to be inaccessibility of care, especially as populations age around the planet, not just in the U.S. That's one really big one is better systems for fewer clinicians to treat more patients. Um, there's just no other way on it. Um, the other one we've touched on a bunch, which is affordability and equity, and which go hand in hand, I think. There is still the case that there is an unacceptable amount of um, illness and death around the planet for things that could be cured. I carry a little torch for fellow cancer patients. So, you know, while we're looking at all this cool tech stuff, which I'm excited about, there's a lot that can be done in immunotherapies and um, new kinds of things around liquid biopsy to diagnose disease earlier, a whole range of things that are, are super exciting. Great. Well, so you've talked a lot about this. If you're looking for a better way in healthcare, you need to be inspired. So where do you go for inspiration? Well, our docs are pretty darn inspiring. Um, hearing their stories is remarkable. And um, I, I like working in a place that has lots of mission ambition, but very little personal ambition. You know, just really understanding what, what our patients need. And, you know, the idea of sort of there's got to be a better way. And then maybe the last thing is um, one of the things that's really a joy about working in healthcare is I think for most of us, most of the time, the competition is not the health system across the street. It's the disease that we're trying to cure. So there is more collaboration and communication and sharing in healthcare than I have experienced in any other industry I've ever worked in. And I find that pretty inspirational. So what's on the horizon for you? What's next? At Mayo, we just finished doing our big ERP implementation and changed out all of our finance and, and um, uh, HR systems and so on. So at this point, you know, kind of our big systems are all cloud-based, software as a service-based. So we've kind of fixed our foundation. So there's a lot more that I think we can do in optimizing those systems and applying AI and doing predictive analytics and all that kind of stuff. So um, all of those things in pursuit of Dr. Ferruger's 2030 mission has got me plenty occupied from a, um, um, you know, Mayo perspective. Um, uh, a colleague, Ed Marks, and I are in the very final stages of finishing a book we've been writing about patient experience and what we would like to see in patient experience. And most important, as a guidebook to patients to say, you know, here's what we wish we knew when we were starting our patient journeys. Here you go. And hope this helps. So I'm hoping that someone might read it someday. I'm happy to hear that you're writing about your own experience and helping others. So thank you so much for just an incredible discussion. So inspirational and lots to look forward to in healthcare. Thanks, Melanie. It was really a pleasure to be with you. It was a great interview. Thank you. 
We touched on some very personal healthcare topics in this episode, Chris. And I want to thank you for sharing your story of cancer with our listeners and inspiring us with your hopeful message. Speaking of hopeful messages, I can't wait for your book to come out this fall, which is all about the patient experience across healthcare and what we wish we could know as patients as we start out on the patient journey. Part of the patient journey involves interoperability, the exchange of clinical intelligence nationwide, which you've been working on throughout your career. At SureScripts, we're working hard to solve some of the biggest problems in healthcare, and interoperability is one of them. Achieving it will help patients get the care they need when they need it. And of course, thank you for shedding light on the hope that AI brings, especially when it comes to the data quality we need to guard against bias and improve health equity. Thank you for helping us find a better way in healthcare, Chris, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you for listening in today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review. There's a better way. Smart Talk on healthcare and technology. With your help, we'll continue to bring great conversations to the fore and to the wider listening public. Thank you.